Today's reading is from Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 14 and it's on page 1180 of the Church Bibles. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody, again. Now... This week, I spent quite a long time preparing quite a wonderful sermon introduction. Uh, I had great pictures and a really cool story to introduce it. And then I worked out that actually it didn't line up with what the Bible was actually going to teach you. So you've got an introduction-free sermon this morning. And I'm totally okay with that, so I hope you are as well. Because the passage that Mel read for us, I think, captures something that is so wonderful that it actually doesn't need to be kind of dressed up and introduced. You should be looking at it going, I love what Paul has written here. I love what Mel has read for us. And let's dig into God's word now. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into it. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this beautiful truth. We thank you that we can know you. We can know what you are about. We can know how it is that we are to relate to you. And Father, we thank you for the example and the passion of our brother Paul, and uh, Father, the safety and the security and the wonderful salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Now, we are returning to Philippians. We did half of Philippians last year, and then we did Christmas, and now we're coming back into Philippians at chapter 3. So just to give you a little bit of a recap as to the church in Philippi. Now, the Apostle Paul planted the church in Philippi. Philippi is up in what we call Macedonia, that northern part of Greece. Uh, Paul, it's recorded in uh, Acts 15 and 16. Paul, or Acts 16, Paul had seen a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over, help us. And so he gets on a boat, goes over, 
and he speaks to people of the Lord Jesus, of his death and resurrection in Philippi, and that church is built. I would encourage you to go back and read it. It's there in Acts 16. Now, we think this is about 51, 52 AD, about 20-odd years after the death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus. So these are still early days. And then Paul, some 10 years later, is writing back to this early fledgling church. The Philippian church hadn't been in existence for as long as Trinity Hills has been in existence. And we're still celebrating birthdays every year. I think we're coming up on 15. They were at about 10. And Paul is writing to them. And he's warning them at the start of this chapter to be on guard. Paul had a whole bunch of people who seemed to follow him around. From church to church, Paul would go in, set up a church, and then not long afterwards, these Christians, we think they were Christians, with a very strong Jewish flavor, would come in and they'd talk about, yeah, yeah, you know, Paul, he's told you the gospel, but has he told you the whole gospel? Has he told you about the Jewish laws and the rituals that you have to go through? Has he particularly told you non-Jews, you Gentiles, about circumcision? These guys would come through and Paul, in a number of his letters, fights these battles against this adding to the gospel. Now, we might think, hey, look, it's just a little ritual or it's a little tradition. It doesn't really matter that much. It does matter. And Paul sees it as foundational. He sees it as absolutely critical that they get this right. Because if you get the foundation of your relationship, your life with God, wrong, you end up like this. This was a, uh, an office tower built in China. Something wrong with the foundation, yes? The whole thing just fell over. Foundations really, really matter. And the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus, is the foundation of the Christian life. And if we get that wrong, we get everything wrong. Because gospel maths is gospel plus anything is nothing. You can't add to the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul goes on the attack. We see it there in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now... Warm, cuddly words, yes. The Apostle Paul's getting a bit feisty here, isn't he? Maybe not as feisty as you think, because in those days, to speak of someone as a dog, particularly in a Jewish setting, was to actually just say that they were a non-Jew. They were unclean outside of the people of God. So you might remember Jesus uses the, uh, the phrase when he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman and doesn't call her a dog but actually says it's wrong to take what is the children and throw it to dogs. Uses that illustration. So here, the Apostle Paul is saying that these Jewish Christians who are insisting on these Jewish customs are actually acting in a way that is inconsistent, that is outside of the people of God. And then Paul unpacks an attack against what they are teaching. He's basically saying, these guys come in 
and they tell you to be Jews. And he says, I am a better Jew than they are. You see it there in verse 4 and 5. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, he sums it up, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You can't get better Jewish pedigree than Paul had. Okay, that's birth. Then he goes on in the next verse. He says, in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee, these ultra serious, ultra committed uh, Jewish sect. These guys were hardcore. As for zeal, he was so zealous with his Jewish faith that he persecuted the church. And you can read about that in Acts. As for a righteousness based on the law, no one could bring a charge against Paul and say that he had not kept the letter of the law. All his external actions were perfect. He was the Sachin Tendulkar of the Jewish world. There were very few rivals. No one could claim to have surpassed him. There are a few up there with him, but he was one of the greats. And prior to meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, the Apostle Paul would have boasted in all of these things. His Jewish heritage, his circumcision, his membership of the Pharisees. He was the Jew extraordinaire. He did everything right. And then when he meets Jesus, everything turns upside down. He writes this. He talks about he who doesn't boast in all those things that he listed. He boasts in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He goes on, verse 7. He says, whatever were gains to me, all those things that I loved, all those things that I cherished, all those things that I built my life and my self-understanding upon, all those things, whatever were gains, I now consider loss. Now, Paul, note here, Paul is not saying that they're no longer of any use. What Paul is actually saying is that they're worse than useless. They've moved from the asset to the liability. They've moved from the profit column to the loss column. Now, why? Why have these things, some of these things, good things, some of these things, right things, why have these things all of a sudden become a loss for him, a liability, a, a stumbling block, something that gets in the way? Because Paul sees that these things can become something that he trusts, something that tempts him to trust in them rather than the Lord Jesus. He's tempted to trust in his heritage. He's tempted to trust in his achievements rather than the Lord Jesus. He's tempted to trust in these things, thus turning them into idols, false gods, and brothers and sisters, we can do this with anything. For Paul, in this context, he's speaking about his Jewish heritage. He could have spoken about the goals that he had kicked as a Christian, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus. I have planted 
Who knows how many churches I've led? Who knows how many people to Christ? You know, for goodness sake, I've written 13 books of the New Testament. There's only, only 27 books in the New Testament. It's almost half, you know, by numbers anyway. He could boast in all these things. But he says, whatever were gains to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Brothers and sisters, lots of things compete for our heart's affections, good things, right things, as well as the wrong things and the evil things and the bad things. It's not necessarily the thing itself. It's what our hearts do with it. Like Paul, pre-Christ, and like Paul, post-Christ as well, I imagine this struggle for him did not go away. There were things in his life and things in our life that tempt us to trust in them. Your bank balance offers security, yes? You're young, you're fit, you're healthy, you've got a good head on your shoulders, your education is top-notch. You live in Australia, you've got a great friendship group, you've got a great family, you've got a career in front of you. Maybe at Christmas you gathered around and you looked at all your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and you see the blessing that they are to you and you trust in those. You're tempted to put your trust for your significance, your worth, the foundation for your life in those things. Now, brothers and sisters, the Bible calls that worshipping idols. And what Paul is saying, it is the gospel alone that saves. We come across this in obvious forms, but less obvious forms as well. A while ago, uh, Karen and I were traveling and we were visiting a friend who was living up in Alice Springs who'd fallen in with a group called the Christian Revival Fellowship. Some of you will know these people. They will teach you that unless you are immersed by full immersion baptism by them and then you speak in tongues, you're not saved. Brothers and sisters, do you see Gospel Plus? They will speak to you of the grace of Christ. They will speak to you of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But you must, if you are to be saved, be baptised in a particular way and have a particular spiritual experience. Gospel Plus. Brothers and sisters, do we do this to ourselves? Maybe we're not as obvious as that. But do we feel that God is happier with us, that we are more accepted by God when we can tick all the boxes? I've read my Bible today. I've said my prayers today. I've been to Bible study. I go to youth group. I attend church regularly. I'm involved in ministry. I share my faith. We can add all these things and we are tempted to put our trust in them. Good things, right things, but what our hearts are tempted to do with them is wrong things. And the danger is that we build a foundation on something that cannot sustain it. We build our foundation upon our own abilities, on our own achievements. And as we've talked about here before, when you succeed, what happens? You're proud, aren't you? I've made it. I'm together. I've got this under control. And you're tempted to look down on others. You're tempted to exclude those who aren't quite as good, as holy, maybe as you are. 
You've also got a massive blind side that you're not seeing, can I say? But brothers and sisters, when we think that we meet the standards, the danger is that we are proud. And when we fail, we slip into worthlessness and despair. Brothers and sisters, don't make religion into an idol. Paul saw it as a loss for him. And we'll talk about it a little bit later. But we likewise. But you might be sitting here this morning. You might be visiting with us. You may be a person who hasn't put their faith in the Lord Jesus. And you're sitting there going, well, well, it's a really good thing I don't fall into that trap because I'm not a Christian. All these Christians, you know, you guys watch out. It's obviously serious for you. But for us, no, probably not where you're at. Can I say, brothers and sisters, it is where you're at. Let me read to you by a guy from David Foster Wallace. This guy is no Christian or was no Christian. He's passed away. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. People who don't follow a religious God follow a non-religious God. You have something in your life that you look to to provide you with the approval, the power, the comfort, the control that you need the significance in your life, the security and safety, that, brothers and sisters, is an idol. And these idols will have laws. Let me tell you, maybe your idol is education and maybe you just sat safe. You had judgment day, didn't you, just a few weeks ago. And you had in your head, some of us made to look back a little bit further, a little bit further away from this. You had in your head what the mark was that you were looking for. And for some of you, you succeeded. And for others of you, you failed. For some of you, you're proud. And for others of you, you despair. Education, academic achievement can be an idol in the same way as Christian experience, as Christian service, as Jewish heritage, as circumcision. Same trap, just in a non-religious way. And the Apostle Paul sums it up. I'm going I'm to do something bad this morning. We're talking about grace. I'm going to teach you a Greek swear word. It's in the Bible, so I feel that I'm allowed to do this. Okay. The Apostle Paul says he considers everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage. Okay, garbage is too nice, I'm afraid. The word is scubalon, and it means useless or undesirable material that is subject to disposal. Refuse, garbage, excrement, manure, kitchen scraps, to convey the crudity of the Greek... It's all crap. Okay? Here's the Apostle Paul looking at all these things that he could have taken pride in. And he says, I put it down the toilet, I press flush, and I walk away, and that's how much value it has. Brothers and sisters, that is not a positive appraisal. Yes? Okay. It can't 
take the weight. You cannot build a life on scubalon. I, I, I try. See what happens. No. So what will work? What will work? What takes the weight? 100% unadulterated gospel takes the weight. Paul says, I consider them scubalon, excrement, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul here introduces this term righteousness. At its basic level, it's rightly relating to someone, to something. If I am righteous according to the road rules, I am keeping the laws. I am meeting the standards. If I am righteous in reference to God, it means that our relationship is perfect, that we are in right relationship. And for the Jew, uh, for the Jewish Christian that was following Paul around, that involved the gospel plus all these other things. For the non-Christian, it's whatever idol you've put up and whatever standard that you think you have to meet. That relationship, that job, that youth and beauty, that education, whatever it is that you've set your hearts upon. If you achieve, you are righteous according to that anyway. For us, brothers and sisters, the danger is that we put up rules in our own lives, in our own heads, in our own hearts. And we try and keep those rules to make ourselves feel like we're ticking the boxes. But here the Apostle Paul puts his finger firmly on the radical nature of the Christian gospel. The thing that sets Christianity out from any other religion. You see there, this right relationship, this right relationship between Paul and God, between us and God, doesn't come from keeping the law, the Old Testament law here, but it comes through faith in Christ. That's Paul's shorthand way of telling us that what Jesus did in his death and resurrection, what Jesus did as he stood in our place, bearing the cost of our sins, dying and rising again to new life. What Jesus did, we have to trust him. It is a righteousness achieved by faith in what he has done. That's the amazing thing. Christianity at its core, at its foundation, the gospel is about what God has done for us not what about what we do in response for him. Brothers and sisters, Paul doesn't look to any human achievement. He looks to the achievement of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And he tells us that this is the one foundation for life, the one thing that will see us rightly related to our creator God, the one thing that will see us recipients of his blessing, the one thing that will let us cry, Abba, Father, is not our performance, but our trust in our brother, the Lord Jesus, our 
piggybacking on his achievements, our sharing by faith in what he has done gives us a firm foundation, not just for now, but for eternity. The only foundation that is not crap. Brothers and sisters, this is what we live in. This is what we're called to. Life built on grace that we are declared to be in a right relationship with God through trusting in Christ. What's it look like? It looks like joy. It looks like peace. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It looks like us being able to say, I choose to obey because I want to obey. Not because I'm guilted into obeying, but God has made this possible for me. It's a life of love, of thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, that is what he has called us to. And that is what Paul presses into. Now, I don't know if you noticed that when Mel was reading for us, Paul sounded a little bit uncertain. Did you pick that up? He talks about, uh, you know, that I might take hold of, I might share in the resurrection. Can I say, Paul is not expressing doubts. If you look there in verse 12, he speaks of Christ Jesus taking hold of him. He speaks of God calling him heavenward in Christ in verse 14. He knows God's, God is king and God is in control and God is doing everything that is necessary. But what Paul is doing is not presuming. I want you to think about it. I want you to think uh, about if you have um, got a good friend, maybe husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. Um, do you know what it feels like to be taken for granted? Does that feel good? What Paul is not doing here is taking Jesus for granted, taking God for granted. He's not presuming upon the relationship. He knows that he is fully Christ's. He knows that salvation is all of grace. But he does not presume. He knows that there is so much more. And so he presses on that everything he has is not everything that he will have. And he wants more. To go back to Ice Age, there's this one scene. I've forgotten which movie it's the end of. I think it's the second where Scrap dies and goes to heaven. Has anyone seen this? Yes. And there he hasn't got his one acorn on the gates of heaven is this wonderful acorn and they open this acorns everywhere. And then there's this wonderful golden acorn up the t- and he's just gathering. Ac- he knows Paul knows that there is so much more of Christ that he could know that he will know. And he wants it. And so he presses on. He pursues it. He forgets what is behind. Amazing words. He says, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. He presses on. Now, I think this is a really important phrase. And I just want to spend just a couple of minutes at the end here talking about it because one of the dangers 
as you press on in the Christian life, as you develop good and godly habits that build God into the center of your life, you're spending time in the Bible, you're spending time in prayer, you're sharing your faith with your friends, you're generous with your money and your time and all sorts of things. The danger is you start to feel proud. Your heart goes back to look at those things and says, oh, look what I've done. Look, I've got everything under control here. I've got this Christian stuff down pat. I've arrived. Paul says, forgetting what is behind. There is, I think, a holy forgetfulness that recognises that our future does not depend upon our past. Our future does not depend upon all our successes or all our failures. This is a wonderful thing. Maybe you're not in good habits of Bible reading and prayer. Maybe there's areas of sin in your life that you really, God is bringing you to focus on, to bring bear to bear. He's exposing that to you and you are feeling the weight of that. Brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying is that his future does not depend upon his past, but Christ's past. And so by going back again and again and again to the gospel of grace, Paul is both humbled when he is tempted to pride and exalted when he is tempted to despair. And brothers, so should we go back to the foundation that is ours in Christ. Doesn't mean we get lazy. Doesn't mean we just forget about what happened yesterday. Yes, we learn and we grow. But our future does not depend upon our past, but Christ's past. As we see the grace of God to us in Christ, as we see the gift of righteousness, it should make us more zealous not less, more keen. Remember those first stirrings of love? You know, first boyfriend, first girlfriend. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe that's coming, okay? But remember what it's like for those of us who've been married for a while. Maybe it's a bit too far in the past and it needs to be rekindled. What wouldn't you do for the one that you love? That's how it works with Christ. And Jesus loves you more than any person could love you. As you see his love lavished upon you freely, so we should want to serve him, want to press on to have more of this, to know him more. Dallas Willard said this, because sometimes people put up grace and see that any call to obedience and service is contradictory. Willard point out that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. I'm doing this to get something. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not have to do just with the forgiveness of sins alone. Grace governs our entire life and motivates and empowers. So as Paul writes, he strains towards what is ahead. He presses on in another place. He tells the Corinthians that everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training to get a crown that will not last. 
But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Brothers and sisters, at the start of this year, when we think about what this year might look for, what we might look back on, knowing that our performance is not the key, but how could we start the year without calling one another to grow in the knowledge and the love and the service of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That we might press on, that we might press in, that we might know more of his work in our life. Because he has laid that foundation. He's done everything that is necessary. He's given us the one sure foundation through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I could keep going. There's so much more here. But that's what we're going to unpack in the next year and the years beyond that as we press together into Christ and God's love for him in us, in, for us in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that in Christ we have your amazing grace lavished upon us. We thank you that in Christ there is nothing Nothing of our own achievement, but everything of his achievement for us. Father, we thank you that through faith, through simple trust in him, we have been accepted as your sons and daughters. Father, let us live in that grace. Let us not add things to the gospel. Let us have a simple, 100% pure unadulterated gospel because that alone is truly wonderful father let us know you more as we rejoice and delight in you through christ and we pray this in his most precious name amen